Welcome to On the Edge with Sick, the podcast where we explore individuals and organizations on the edge of social innovation through a design lens. We're your hosts, Nita and Sylvia, co-founders of Sick. Hi, everyone. Today, we have a guest with us. Morenike Eniola Ola Oshebiken is a pharmaceutical manufacturing innovator, a licensed clinical pharmacist, and a pharmacy owner. Morenike founded the Comet Group in 2021, which designs and builds pop-up drug manufacturing facilities and includes a software platform that will anticipate, track, and resolve drug shortages and drug insecurity globally and particularly in countries in Africa. Welcome, Marenike. Thank you. And really good job on pronouncing my name, by the way. Good job. (laughs) You're welcome. I practiced that a few times. (laughs) So, Marenike, we start all of our episodes with asking our guests, what does On the Edge mean to you? You know, it's really interesting. Um, I've I've spent a lot of the last few months thinking about what I think knowledge is and what knowledge isn't, and and I think where I am now is this um, this anti-disciplinary concept of you can know a thing that isn't as well as a thing that is at the same time. It's I suppose an extrapolation from Buddhism. And I've always struggled with boundaries around different types of knowledge. So I'm the pharmacist that's also an artist, that's also a clothing designer and an innovator. And I've always wanted to be able to initially anyways, connect these multiple interests. So for me now, I would say that knowledge is this embodiment of being aware and being understanding in such a way that I can apply the information in multiple different contexts. So for me, on the edge has this connotation around knowledge. So being on the edge of reason or on the edge of knowledge. And that edge is a really thin line. Uh, it's, It's the exact point before you know something. So it's possible to have a ton of information and not be knowledgeable. And I think that line between having a ton of information and then it becoming embodied awareness and would that, that, that line is the, is what it means to be on the edge. So if you imagine standing on a line between information and knowledge or, not understanding and understanding or being in a version of an untruth and truth, uh, that that line is being on the edge. And it's not a linear thing either. It's this really beautiful, non-linear, fractal line. <laughs> um, and yeah, for those of us who really want to put, like expand, we stand on that edge and we move with that edge as it shifts. That's what On the Edge implies to me, the title of your podcast. <laughs> wow, that's beautiful. I love the visual that that language creates, nonlinear fractal lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So we're going to get into your background, your passions, and your work. Can you tell us more about your professional journey? For sure. My professional journey starts really way back, probably when I was seven years old, but I will fast forward <laughs> to mm-hmm. 2018. So by this, by 2018, I had run a not-for-profit organization that had started in college called the Ribbon Rouge Foundation. And that foundation was initially to raise money to send to African countries for people living with HIV. And HIV has been a lifelong, uh, inexplicable passion for me. Mm-hmm. The fact that it affects Black people more has always bothered me. Um, the injustice in just having different health outcomes has always bothered me. And so in 2018, I started traveling in African countries, facilitated by board members from Ribbon Rouge Foundation to understand health access and drug medication access in African countries. That resulted in me conceptualizing this idea of a factory in a box. So a transportable, modular, clean room system that can be deployed anywhere so Africans can make their own medications. But I couldn't raise the money for it. I, I The architectural designs were completed by 2020. Couldn't raise money for it. So then I decided I will build my own lab um, in 2021 and build my own software last year. And those two things became a very successful proof of concept mm-hmm. to then build the factory in the box next. So that's that's where we're heading next. So um, last year, we were able to contribute in Canada to resolving shortages of children's uh, pain and fever medication and some of the anti-nauseants. We were able to supply an estimate of 3,000 bottles. We went from Alberta to Saskatchewan to Ontario in Canada, resolving these shortages. And that became like the basis for my next build of of the version of the factory in the box that we're working on next. Right. And you said you built a lab where you're making medications and what's, what does that um, involve? It's not like a pharmaceutical manufacturing company, but you do compounding. So can you just briefly define what that is for our audience? For sure. So compounding is a process of making medications, uh, custom making medications in response to specific orders from a prescriber that is in a relationship with patients. Mm -hmm. And so we're able to make these drugs that are commercially unavailable. And it could be commercially unavailable because there's a shortage, like children's acetaminophen and ibuprofen last year. Or it could be commercially unavailable because the drug that is needed just doesn't exist. Uh, for the population that is being treated. for This would be, for example, with um, a lot of sexually diverse um, populations across Canada, across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would make the medications in a lab that is properly designed and built for that. And typically those drugs don't last, the longest they last is maybe six months. Um, and um, they're made in very small quantities, not mass-produced like in a pharmaceutical manufacturing company. Right. Thank you so much for defining that. 
So looking at your work right now, what would you say is the biggest challenge facing you? And has COVID had any impact on that? Ironically, COVID really supported my work. The pandemic really proved my point. So in 2018, Mm -hmm. one of the things I had been saying was, what if there's a pandemic? Are you trying to say that 1.3 billion people in Africa would just have no access to medications? Because one of the things I'd learned in 2018 was when you place orders for medications for entire countries in Africa, you won't receive those medications for another six months, which means countries have to forecast the drugs they would need for the 12 months out because drugs also have expiry dates. Mm-hmm. And so you just had these really bizarre situations that we had accepted. And so the pandemic then drove home this point because even when wealthy Africans try to purchase medications, drug companies won't sell to them because the margin in Canada, UK, Australia was like five times higher than the margin they could make in African countries. And so it just reinforced my point so that I was able to get a lot more interest in African countries for the work I'm I'm doing for the facilities I'm building. And also in Canada, when the shortages started to happen, my lab and my software were already ready. So, well, the lab was there. And so then it also increased the utility of compounding in in the situation of shortages. So that that has been my experience. I do see though that pharmacists in community that they it hasn't been quite the same experience for pharmacists because mm-hmm. they've they've experienced a lot of post-COVID trauma and burnout and stress. And that's an ongoing thing in the profession. My biggest challenge with Kimet, my group of companies, is I'm running three entities across multiple countries with very limited capital. And so just trying to balance Mm -hmm. the workload, it's a lot of work. That's my biggest challenge now. Mm. Yeah, I agree. That's very difficult to navigate. I know that you have some kind of background related to design and design thinking. So could you explain any opportunities for using that type of thinking in your current work? For sure. You know, um, I've touched on my foundation just really briefly, Mm -hmm. but in my, so one of the things that happened was while I was in pharmacy school, I, as I mentioned, I've had this lifelong desire to be part of the solution for people living with HIV. So we'd started this fashion art music show where we were going to sell enough art (laughs) to, Mm -hmm. to, to fundamentally end HIV. We were going to eliminate (laughs) HIV. Like literally we, all my signatures were to zero, to zero HIV. We were going to eradicate HIV from the world by making enough money, by selling the arts. (laughs) Like this is a really flawed theory of change. So this theory of change that we could, you know, make so much money by selling arts to eliminate HIV. And that work 
you know, took me in a really interesting path because it started with selling my paintings and clothing as a a clothing designer. And then it became community organizing and a lot of activism Mm -hmm. work and a lot of grassroots development work in Alberta, Canada. Um, And what started to happen was committing to the results that I wanted meant I also had to evolve my understanding of what the problem was. So I started to have this sort of change in, oh, this is the problem. No, this is the solution. And so the problem and solutions that like co-evolved over the years mm-hmm. of, of, of that work in Ribbon Rouge Foundation, I find that that's very much a way to think as like a designer, right? But mm-hmm. my design, my design thinking sensibilities, if you will, are so deeply influenced by community organizing work um, so that mm-hmm. I have these sort of ways of being that kind of designer, but kind of activist, but kind of um, organizer, but also really, you know, def- like finding ways to solve the problem that is practical as well. And yeah, so I, I would say those are the the opportunities that I've had with design thinking in the past have really forced me to come up with solutions with community, but also think about what is the kind of organization that can come up with a solution. So designing the product, but also designing the thing that would create the product um, and, and doing the same, doing this problem, solution, evolution over time. So you mentioned the theory of change, which is uh, used a lot in uh, social and healthcare sectors. Can you briefly explain what that is? I can explain it the way I've come to understand it for myself. Mm-hmm, yeah. I, I think of a theory of change as the undergirding philosophy that's driving our behavior. So for those who are fi- familiar with the iceberg model, the iceberg model where you have a giant iceberg and you can just see the tip of it and all the stuff that's at the bottom is not visible to you. But the tip of the iceberg is really part of this huge underlying influence That's sort of how I imagine the theory of change. Theory of change is at the very bottom of that iceberg. It's your undergirding philosophies, the mental models, the mental map you have about how the world works, your worldview necessarily. Mm -hmm. And you're filtering everything (laughs) through that, um, all the activities, all the behaviors coming through that for change making. And so... We have these theories of change and and as organizations that are changing things in the world, they also have that governance and government leaders that are changing things. They have theories of change. And some of us have make it intentional and some of us run around with it and it's completely unconscious to us. And mm. and that's how I see it. It's it's this underlying way that you've philosophically think you philosophically think that the world is going to change and that theory or philosophy is driving um, your behavior. 
So Morena Kay, um, you are very much interested in empathy, specifically empathy and drug design. Can you explain to us what empathy and drug design is? For sure. I think like many things, it's safe to first define it the way I've come to know it. Because I, I, I say this because very often the way I've come to know it versus how academ- academics might, you know, describe it or detail it might be slightly different. So I would say that for me, what I've come to describe empathy as is this ability to sense that it's in two forms. So this ability to sense patterns from information and maybe to borrow the name of your podcast again, (laughs) this state of being right on that edge, right before you call the thing a name, before you give it a label, before you put a boundary around it, right on that edge, um, the ability to intuitively sense, you know, this closing of a gap between understanding and not understanding or maybe say the right direction from not understanding to understanding that being right on that edge and making that shift. I think of that as empathy. Another way to, another form of it is the process of reducing the distance between perspectives and perspectives can have many forms. It could be a cognitive thing. It could be an emotional thing. It could be a sensory thing. It could be the perspectives that are taken from multiple people or multiple situations. But that shift then, reducing that distance between these perspectives is empathy. So perhaps Nita stands on a completely different perspective from me cognitively on the topic of medication access. Um, And... I'm on the different side of it. I, and I, I, cl- I look at the gap between that perspective and mine and make that shift between my perspective and hers. That shift is what I'm thinking is empathy, that closing of the gap between those perspectives. And what I'm proposing is that there's currently an empathy gap between the quality of life that people want, that perspective, and the medications, the medicines that we provide them. There's a gap between that. And when, when, when there is empathy in drug design, the whole person is centered in the conception and development of their medicines. So physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially, the whole person. And what I find to be the case currently in pharmaceutical care and the way medications are designed is that it's super reductionist. So it takes this whole person and distills them for very good reason. This is really important. I I think when knowledge starts to be antidisciplinary, the risk is that we devalue disciplines and that's not at all where I want this to go. It's really good that pharmaceutical companies did this. It was really important to be super utilitarian (laughs) um, about medication. So it's hyper utilitarian, very functional, reduces the human being into these systems, these organs, these very distinct surrogate markers that you can then track to measure how is this person's blood pressure? 
How is this person's heart function? How is this person's sexual health? And everything is distilled with very clear, you know, markers that you can measure. But it also basically industrializes patients. It's this really mechanized view about the person so that the drugs and the medications that we're giving them isn't really looking at the whole truth. It's not really looking at the whole person. Mm-hmm. And what yeah. I want is, yeah, what I'm thinking is empathy and drug design would would be kinder if we were able to do that. Yeah, and it's not just drugs, but it's the healthcare system in general is become quite industrialized. And we talked about this in a prior podcast, Empathy in Healthcare. So I'll leave our listeners to go find that episode. I think maybe another way to say this is uh, I've had many, many students come through um, my pharmacy practice, especially when I was in community pharmacy. And one of the things I would say to them when they were, you know, tracking all the markers and following up on patients to get people to do exactly the way they think that the patient should behave. I'm like, you know, when this patient was a child and they said, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Nobody, like nobody ever in life raises their hands and goes, I want to be the best patient known to man. I will be the best patient for all my pharmacists and healthcare providers. I would do exactly what they say, best patient. That's what I want to be when I grow No, Nobody says that. But as a pharmacist and a healthcare provider, we, I, it really does feel like that's how we treat patients. We treat patients as if, you know, what they wanted to be when they grew up is patients. So they have to follow like 1 million things that we throw at them. It's not kind. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Marenike, can you describe a specific project that embraced um, empathy and drug design? One of the things I'm working on now is um, I'm working with trans and queer people um, across Canada it's funded by the Canadian Women's Foundation. And what we're trying to understand is, you know, how can we make medication that's personalized to suit unique bodies? So as a community pharmacist, this was something else that I I noticed was any time a prescription will come into the pharmacy for a trans person or for a gender non-binary person, I would just see that the pharmacist is right away on a a therapeutic um, journal or somewhere trying to dig up information about what had been prescribed. And everyone's basically trying to pretend like they understand what's on this prescription at this point. (laughs) And and everyone's working on, walking on eggshells, like, most people are not really sure how to talk or what not to say or what to say. And and then at this point, then got driven even further home when I said compounding, because I would get these mixtures for medications and we would have all these shortages of the ingredients for the medications. And it just got me down this path, this path of curiosity around, you know, which medications have actually centered trans people where the entire drug design process was around 
them. Because my experience as a community pharmacist is that actually that's never the case. What What usually happens is there's a drug for a different patient group for a different problem that has now been reverse engineered or turned or somehow shifted to be used for trans and queer folk. And also this really industrialized way of uh, pharmaceutical care where once again, they're reduced to their genitalia or some other part of themselves to determine these are the drugs that we're going to give trans people. And I just thought this cannot be, there must be something not quite, you know, this, I don't understand how this can be working in a life-affirming way, the way we currently are providing these medications. And so I wanted to learn more. So we've reached out now to trans and queer folks across the country. We want to understand the landscape. So who are all the actors in the system? And then I want to understand from the trans and queer perspective what medis- what medicines would look like if they were centered in it, if it wasn't that we were reverse engineering things or changing things that, that were made for other people. And to the point about knowledge, what seems very missing is knowledge about these populations. There isn't a lot of research because we're taking stuff from other problems and trying to make it work in, in these communities. And so we're thinking if we could put together literature, then we could put it in curriculum so that people, healthcare providers are comfortable and confident and competent um, in the area as well. So that's a current, you know, use of this idea of empathy in drug design. Wow, that's great. That's a great example of empathy there. I wanted to move on to um, your African tour that we've been following on social media earlier this year. Can you let us know what what was the purpose of this tour? Yeah, it's funny what I like. I I make jokes that I did reality social media while in Africa, (laughs) like the posting every day and Mm -hmm. jokes. (laughs) What I said on social media in one of the many posts was that I was going to apprentice the problem and, and I'd gone in part to evolve my knowledge on what the problems are, like how the root causes for why we don't have access to quality medications across Africa. And then in, in the other part, I had gone to secure agreements um, for sales of my facilities to validate that, you know, this was really a, a way to be valuable, like, that these facilities would actually do what we want them to do and create access. And then to also get some partnerships uh, for tech, like technical partners to actually build and scale, operate the facilities across the continent. And my experience was filled with so much adventure, so much frustration, <laughs> a lot of learning, lots of success in, in the reasons I had gone. And like many things with with this sort of work, uh, the problem evolved and the solutions are evolving too. 
So the idea, the initial idea of the factory in the box that, you know, provides finished drug products, that shifted a little bit. And so now I'm seeing that there's a chance that the solution is actually more of a digital infrastructure, like more of an online digital platform, and that the factory in the box might not make finished drug products. It perhaps might make compounded medications, and um, yeah. So so far, this is this is the work. Thank you, Maronike, for sharing that and for sharing so much about your philosophy, your theory of change, your background, and an application of empathy in drug design towards uh, trans and career health, but. Speaking of everything that we talked about in today's conversation, what would you say is the one takeaway that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I want to go back, I think, maybe to empathy in in drug design. Thinking about empathy in drug design, I think we should stop contorting people to fit their drugs and that we should find ways for our healthcare, our medications to fit us mm-hmm. and that that would be a kind way to 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 be well to you know to be healthy to cl- to close that empathy gap by making our health solutions fit us as human beings perfect i agree And how might our listeners connect with you? Uh, We know you're very active on social media. (laughs) I'm all over social media. You could, uh, if you look for Kimet Group on LinkedIn and on Facebook and on YouTube, uh, we're there. And I'll share the links as well so that it's it's with the podcast. Great. We'll have all those links in our show notes. So thank you so much, Moronike, for joining us today and for sharing so much about you and your companies, three companies, and your future towards making drug design more empathic and kinder for everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to On The Edge with your hosts, Nita and Sylvia. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or drop a comment and rating. Head over to sickhealth.ca to learn more about sick and check out all the links and resources in the episode show notes. Thanks and stay tuned for future podcast episodes with On the Edge with Sick.